Father, we thank you for your provision for us, your provision for us through Jesus Christ, for his power over sin and death and Adam. And Father, thank you that what, for what we have become through him and in him. And Father, we pray that you would now guide us and instruct us from your word. We need Even as we will see again in this passage, we need transformation from you. And so would you take this word? Would you make it to come alive to us that we would see its beauty and its majesty and its provision? Might it give us a great vision of who you are? And might it compel us to war against the flesh the way Christ has called us to war against it. And that we would be hopeful. Oh, Father, make us hopeful this morning. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. In August of 2011, Troy and Danya Donovan closed up their home in Littleton, Colorado and made their way to Indiana. Uh, Troy had uh, been unemployed for several months and they were having trouble making ends meet and so they had found uh, some jobs available for him in Indiana and they were going to Indiana on a temporary basis, not moving permanently, but, but leaving their home in Littleton and then planning to return after the winter was over in the springtime and when they had saved some money. So they packed everything up, winterized their home so that it would survive well through the Colorado winter and went to Indiana and found the work that they were seeking. In March, compelled by a little feeling of uneasiness that she really wasn't able to quantify, Donya called her neighbor in anticipation of coming back to Colorado and, and moving back into their home. And her neighbor informed her that someone had already moved into their home, uninvited. No lease, no plan, no call, no knowledge of who the individual was or who the family was, but this couple and their two children just moved into the home. They thought they were there legitimately. They had bought the home for $5,000, quite a deal, from a real estate agent named Alfonso Carrillo, who claimed that he owned the home by means of adverse possession. Adverse possession means that you can move into anybody's house, and as long as they don't object, that you can stay there and ultimately gain legal ownership of that property. Now, in Colorado, it takes 18 years of residency without the owner complaining before you can own the home. Obviously, this family, nor neither this family nor Mr. Carrillo had, had um, rightly fulfilled the law in, of adverse possession, but they were there. It would um, seem a simple thing to get rid of them. I mean, somebody's in your house, right? Call the police. The police show up and say, get out of the house. It's not yours, except they show a contract and says, it is ours. And the policemen say, this isn't our responsibility, find a lawyer. And so they found a lawyer and they began the eviction process. But at that point, the family that was living in the home declared bankruptcy. And in the state of Colorado, at least, if someone declares bankruptcy, you cannot evict them from the home in which they are living, even if they are there illegally. Can you get a little sense of maybe 
a little bit of the frustration that the Donovans were having at this point? Well, the story does have a happy ending. In August of 2011, after five months of legal maneuvering, the Donovans were able to get the squatters evicted from their home and they got the home back legally. And in an even added grace, the home was in good condition because the family that was living there thought it was their house. And so they took care of it as well as they would take care of their home and did not destroy it in the process. That story has a happy ending. There's another story with a similar ultimate kind of happy ending, but with difficulty in the middle. And that is the story of the believer in Jesus Christ. The believer in Jesus Christ has similarly been moved from the domain of Adam and into the rulership of Jesus Christ. Sin is no longer his master. Christ is his master. He's not identified as a sinner and not lorded over by death, but he is identified as being righteous and lorded over by life. And yet, there is remaining sin in his life, isn't there? And that sin in his life is very much an unwelcome guest, even as that family was in the home of the Donovans. That's That remaining sin and that flesh serves as a squatter in the believer's life. In fact, one, one person has rightly called this squatter flesh the dark guest. It is a dark guest indeed, a, a guest who shows up unbidden, unwelcome, undesired, a guest who shows up and in, in some ways um, takes significant control at times and for extensive parts of a person's life. And what we find with that reality is that until the believer is glorified, he will have a battle with sin. The struggle with sin is real. And that is the focus of the passage that we want to continue to look at this morning in Romans chapter 7. We started this passage last week and looked at verses 14 to 17 particularly, thinking about the the first lament of the believer. And we want to look at this passage again this morning and and be reminded of a second lament that, that a believer has in his battle against remaining sin. And then next week we want to talk about the believer's hope and the, the believer's reality. But as we come to this passage, it's a familiar passage. You, you know this passage well, undoubtedly, in some of the, the difficulties and burdens and strains of your life. You've, you've gone back to this passage and you've, you've tried to make sense of your life and, and your wrestling with sin as you have read through and examined this passage. And just by way of reminder, the theme of this passage is simply that a believer's life is a battle against remaining sin. That is our life. That is where we live. It is a life of a battle against remaining sin. Now, as we come to this passage, I want to remind you of a couple things as we as we come to verse 18. And one is just to remind you about who is speaking. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. And the Apostle Paul identifies himself all throughout this passage. He uses the personal pronoun I repeatedly throughout this passage. But, but what does Paul mean when he says I? And there are three primary things that he could mean when he says I. He could be talking about himself as representative of many other people before he trusted in Jesus Christ. So this is Paul, when he says I, this is Paul, but before he came to trust in Christ. Now, it could be a couple of different circumstances before he came to Christ. It could be that this was Paul before he came to Christ and he hated God. 
He was against God's law. He wasn't interested in God's law. He wasn't interested in God's morality. He wasn't interested in God's truth. He wasn't interested in following after God. He was wholly opposed to God. Or it could be Paul before he came to Christ, but he was moving towards God. There was, there was something in him that was compelled by Christ. He was interested in Christ. He valued the word of God. He valued the law. And, and he was trying to keep the law in order to be right before God. We would call him a moralist. He's not trusted in Christ, but he's a quote-unquote good man. Or it could be that Paul is speaking about himself after he has trusted in Jesus Christ. So he has become a believer in Jesus Christ, and again, he is representative of a whole number of people. Not just, this isn't true just of Paul, but this is true of, of all believers in Jesus Christ, or a significant number of believers. Now, it could be, again, that it's a couple different things here. It could be that, that he's come to Jesus Christ, he's trusted in Jesus Christ, but, but he has never matured very much. He's never been taught, he's never been trained, he's never grown, he's never developed, he's, he's never really, what you would say, walked with Jesus Christ or demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit in a significant way that you would look at him and say, that's a mature man. He's immature, untaught, uneducated, just struggling along in the spiritual life. Or it could be that he is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ and he is really mature. He has been taught, he has learned, he reads, he studies, he's compelled by Christ, he's following after Christ, he's pursuing Christ, but he has this wrestling of the flesh. The third primary possibility is that he is neither a believer nor an unbeliever, but, but Paul is talking more about the law and that, that his point is that the law cannot sanctify or save anyone. So he's not really concerned about the I in this passage, but he's actually concerned about the law and how does the law, how can you use the law to either achieve salvation or achieve sanctification? And his conclusion is you can't do it to achieve either. Uh, now we took the position last week and we don't want to rehash everything from last week, but just by way of reminder, uh, we took the position last week that Paul is speaking about a believer in Jesus Christ, and he is, in fact, a mature believer. He is, as Paul is at that moment, an apostle in Jesus Christ. And um, as Paul is a mature believer in Jesus Christ, walking with Christ, he represents all believers that have come to trust in Christ as their Savior. And a number of reasons for that. One is that Paul continually uses the present tense throughout this passage. Just notice this, verse 14, he says, I am, that's a present tense, of the flesh. So he, he currently is struggling, wrestling with the flesh. For what I am doing, present tense, I do not understand. That's a present tense. For I am not, present tense, practicing, present tense, what I would like to do, but am, present tense, doing the very thing I hate. He's not talking about something in the future. He's not talking about something in the past. He's talking about his present reality. And that, and that just runs all the way through this passage. Another thing that we see all the way through this passage is his references to the personal pronouns, I, 18 times. He uses the personal pronoun I. I, 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 I. I didn't count, but it's approaching 18, right? It's me. This is me. This is where I live. This is my life. This is my reality, even right now. Furthermore, he has a new mind and he has a new heart in the way he thinks about sin. So verse 15, he says... I am not practicing what I would like to do. The sinners love their sin. They embrace their sin. 
They think there's nothing wrong with their sin or they think that their sin is immaterial to God or they just know that God hates the sin, but they don't care. They love their sin more than they're interested in God. And they embrace it. But Paul's different. I, I am not practicing what I would like to do. What would you like to do, Paul? I would like to obey the law in all of its fullness. I would like perfectly to fulfill the law. I, I want to I be one of God's people. I, I want to be like Jesus Christ in every aspect of my life. That's what I want. Friends, that's a believer talking. That is not an unbeliever talking. And in fact, he, notice what else he says in verse 15. I am doing the very thing I hate. I hate sin. I hate rebellion against God. I, I hate wandering away from God. I, I hate that I'm, I'm, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. I hate that. It, it's not something I embrace. This is, this is again a renewed mind and a renewed heart. Unbelievers don't think in this way. They, they love their sin. And we again see this concept of a renewed mind and renewed heart all the way through this passage. And so this, this section in, in some sense Verses 14 to 25 is speaking about a believer's godly anxiety. He's not doing what he wants to do, and he is doing what he doesn't want to do. He has this renewed mind and renewed heart, and his struggle is in fulfilling everything that that new heart desires. Well, that leads Paul to lament in two different ways. We see the first lament in verses 14 to 17. And again, just by way of reminder, the first lament is, I do, Paul says, what I hate. The first lament is, I do what I hate. And, and here's his condition. He gives his condition of doing what he's hating in verse 14. He says, I know that the law is spiritual. That is, that the law is given by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is superintending the giving of Scripture and the, the giving of the Word of God. So the law is spiritual. It's from the Spirit. But I... I'm of flesh. I am in contrast to the, to the Spirit. I am not like the Spirit. I am, I am contrary to the Spirit. And in fact, he says, I am sold into bondage to sin. Literally, I am sold under sin. And he uses that little phrase, sold under sin or in bondage under sin, in chapter 3 to refer to the life of the unbeliever. So the unbeliever is one who is dominated by sin, controlled by sin, mastered by sin. And here Paul says... Even though I'm a believer, I am in my flesh. I'm in bondage to sin. I am underneath sin. Well, in what sense is he underneath sin? He, because he's a believer. He's been removed, right? He's, he's not in Adam anymore. He's not in sin. He's, he's not in death, but he's in Christ. So in what sense is he still underneath sin? Well, he is still underneath sin in that. Um, he's still wrestling with the flesh. So there's still flesh inside of him that hasn't been redeemed. We, we see this in chapter 6, chapter 6, end of, end of 5, and, and all of chapter 6, a great um, section to, to speak about our identity in Christ. We're, we're in Christ. We're not in Adam. We've been moved from Adam, transferred from, from darkness into light, transferred from death into life, transferred from sin to righteousness. So Adam is no longer our master, but Christ is now our master. And in the midst of this great section about our identity in Christ and being with Christ and being in Christ, he says this in verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. 
Why would he say in the midst of this great chapter about our position in Christ, why does he say, command, don't let sin reign in your body? Because it's a possibility that sin might reign in our mortal body. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle John will say something very similar. He says, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you say, I don't have any sin, if I've, that's all been washed away, I'm in Jesus Christ and I'm in Christ and Christ is my righteousness and God sees me only with His righteousness and I only do righteousness and I don't do sin. John says the truth is not in us. And he carries it another step further. He says in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, not only... Some were saying, not only do I, do I not sin habitually, do I not sin as an ongoing practice, not only do I not sin anymore, I never did sin. I always think, did they not have wives for somebody to go to talk to and say, hey, does he never sinned in his life? Is that true? Um, but notice what he says about that. If we say that we have not sinned, Not only are we liars, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's a reality that even though we are in Jesus Christ, there is still a sense, while Christ is our Lord and Christ is our master, that there is still remaining flesh that that at times dominates us and at times that we submit ourselves to. There's another sense in which in which we experience this in that um, while God sees us as fully righteous, He sees us clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He considers us to be fully justified and righteous even though we are not yet. Um, he considers us that way, but the reality is we are not yet complete. We are not yet fully righteous. There's a completion to our salvation that is still coming that is not finished yet. So chapter 8, he says, these whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those he justified, he also glorified. Now what's interesting about that verse is that those are all past tenses. Notice that? He predestined, well that was some time ago. In eternity past. He called. That was in eternity past. He justified. That was in historical past when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And then we came to trust in that cleansing work from the cross. And then those he justified, he also glorified. Now, wait a minute. That's past tense. I'm not. I know it's hard to believe, but looking at me, I'm not glorified yet. I know it's hard to believe I'm not, but I'm not. And yet, what does he say? It is so sure. It is so sure that it's coming that he talks about it as being completed in the past. Isn't that great news? But the reality is it's not come yet, has it? We are still looking forward. So there's a a sense in which we are under sin in that we're still looking for the completion of our salvation. And then we are also still under sin in that we are subject to the ultimate effect of sin and that is death. We still have to walk through the veil of death. 
Um, death is still a master over us in that we will still all die. These bodies have not yet been fully redeemed. And I, I found particularly helpful as I think about um, this section, what S. Lewis Johnson said about it. He said, Paul is talking about the partial bondage of an imperfectly sanctified man, not the total bondage of an unsaved man. That's helpful. Partial bondage of an imperfectly sanctified man. Partial, occasional, sometimes, in some areas, for some duration, but not total. And, and Paul, Paul, is using, Paul is using really strong language here, isn't he? He says, I am of the flesh. I am sold into bondage to sin. And it, isn't it comforting that here the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, is one who identifies himself as still struggling with sin. There's hope for us, friends. If Paul, if the one who is responsible for half of, just about half of the New Testament, if we're counting the number of books, 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, penned by the Apostle Paul, and if he is still struggling with sin, there's hope for us as well, isn't there? This is the believer's condition. Even when we are redeemed, even when we are justified, sin is still powerful. And as one writer says, hangs on and contaminates his living and frustrates his inner desire to obey the will of God. Is there, is there proof of this? Is there proof that this is our condition? Yes. That's given to us in verses 15 and 16. Paul says, what I am doing, I do not understand. When he uses the word understand, it's a, it's a word that means knowledge. Um, but, but he's not just talking about knowing, he's talking about approval and he's talking about commending. And so when he says, what I'm doing, I do not sanction, I do not give approval to. Why? Because I am practicing what I would, I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. I'm not doing what I want to do. I don't approve of the thing that I'm doing. But I'm doing the very thing I hate. Here he's, he's doing something very similar to what he said in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. Never take grace and use it as an excuse to sin. That's abhorrent to the Apostle Paul. And in the same way, he would say it is abhorrent that he would do the things that, that he doesn't want to do and not do the things that he does want to do. He, he, he's ensnared. In fact... Um, when he says, I'm doing the very thing I hate, it, it, it's particularly emphatic. He says, but that very thing I hate, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And I hate it. it, it this, is, this is, again, another reminder that, that God has taken Paul and given him a new mind and a new heart. And, and just like in Ezekiel chapter 36, where the heart of stone, the unbelieving heart, is replaced by the heart of flesh, the believing heart. Here Paul has a new heart and he has new desires and he has new longings that produces grief over sin. And, and it is such a grief that notice what, what he also says, verse 16, but if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. And what does the law say about his sin? The law says condemned. You're a sinner. You are not righteous on your own. And Paul says, I agree. The law's good. 
the law is good and righteous and holy, he says at the end of, at the, end of the previous section, verses 12 and 13, the, the law is holy and righteous and good. It does good things. It leads me to understand that I am not holy on my own. It, it condemns me. Paul says the law is right. God's, sta- God's standard cannot and will not be met by me without Christ. And, and this, is, this is Paul and this is, this is every believer. We see the standard of God. We do not do it. We do not meet it. We cannot achieve it. We want to do it, but we cannot and we will not. And inevitably we will fail and we will be counted to be unrighteous in that moment. This is proof. The law is the proof against us. Where does this stuff come from? That's the third issue Paul addresses about our condition. Verse 17, the source of the believer's condition. So now, he says, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Notice he does not say, I am dwelling or living in sin. I am dwelling or living in Adam. He is not saying, I am still in Adam. He is not saying that that he is in sin, but he is saying that sin is in him. And, and Paul here thinks about his life as a home, right? So he's, he says, there's a dwelling place. And my body, my life is a dwelling place. And my, my dwelling place is not in the habitation of sin, but sin is in the habitation of my life, my home. So as one commentator says, this sin, this flesh, is not an honored guest, nor the paying tenant, but the squatter, not legitimately there, but very difficult to eject. What's the source of Paul's problem? What's, what's his problem and what's my problem? It's, it's the illegal squatter. And you can hear his weariness and his sadness, can't you? I'm grieved and, 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 I, and I'm not doing what I want to do and, and, and I long to do something different and something better. Well, as if that wasn't bad enough, it just gets worse. Not only do I do what I hate, but now there's a second lament in verses 18 to 20, and it is I don't do what I love. So I have a new longing and a new desire, and I don't do that. Second lament, I don't do what I love. And and here again, verse 18, is the condition of the believer. And, and again, I remind you, I, um, I found John MacArthur's outline to be particularly helpful as I think through this passage. And so, so I'm following his, the way he has structured this passage. And, um, and just point you now, verse 18, to the condition of the believer. And the condition, notice he's very blunt. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. I am not righteous on my own. He's just coming out of discussing the the law and how the law condemns him. The law is good in, in the condemnation of him. And as he considers that, he says, I know that there's nothing good in me. But then he's very quick to qualify that statement. That is in my flesh. And by that little phrase, in my flesh, he simply means that in his flesh, apart from the Spirit of God, he is not capable of doing good and he is incapable of avoiding sin. If he operates by the flesh, he will only do what the flesh will do and the only thing that the flesh will do is produce sin. If he's in the flesh, 
He is incapable of anything good. Because, in fact, the statement that he makes, there is nothing good that dwells in me, is not completely true, is it? If you take that as a singular statement without his qualification, Paul's not right. For there is much that is good that is in the Apostle Paul. Drop down to chapter 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Verse 11, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. What does Paul have living within him? The Holy Spirit of God. That's good. That's a great good. That's a perfect good. That's a moral good. A, an, an, an undefilable, righteous goodness. And not only is the Holy Spirit of God in him, but the holiness that comes from the Spirit of God is also in him. So in chapter seven, 6 and 7, but let me just point you to a couple of verses in, verse, in chapter 7. Uh, in both of these chapters, he talks about the law of the Spirit of Christ. For instance, chapter 7, verse 6. Now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. So the law is no longer our master. So that we serve, he says, in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. I don't try and maintain the the law as a standard of righteousness and holiness. Now I am operating under the authority and power and direction of the Spirit of God to live my life so that I am holy. The, The law of the Spirit of Christ is in me producing His holiness. Not only does He have the holiness of the Spirit of Christ, but He has, 1 Timothy says, a good conscience. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So he has a conscience. All people everywhere have consciences. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So all people have consciences, but Paul's conscience is different, and that is a good conscience. Again, he says, Um, In verse 19, he says uh, to Timothy, uh, I commend you to fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So you have a good conscience. This is the working of the Holy Spirit of of God in you. He's not only... Um, has good things in him, but he is himself a new creation. So Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away and new things have come. He has a new identity and a new position and, and he has a new master and a new Lord. He has a new creation. That's a good thing. He not only has, has is a new creation, but, but he is a new creation that can please God. So 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that he's a new creation. Verse 9 of the same chapter says, We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, whether in heaven, home, or absent, still here on earth, to be pleasing to him. So we have now an, an ability to be pleasing to God because we are a new creation. 
And not only do we have a capacity to please God, but we have a capacity to do good to others. And we see that in numerous passages through the New Testament because God has created us for good works. Ephesians 2.10 For you are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works. The good works reside in you and come through you and benefit others. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17 tells us that Scripture is making us increasingly good. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us that not only do we have goodness in us, but we have the very gospel in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure, the gospel, in our earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. The gospel is in us. And this is the gospel then that we take to the nation. So Romans chapter 10, we'll see this in a few months. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How will they then call on him and who they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of great things. And how will you take good news to an unbelieving world except the gospel is in you? To be worked through you. Is there anything good in Paul? Yeah. Lots. On what basis? Christ alone. It's nothing that Paul did. It's nothing that Paul achieved. When Paul works on his own, when Paul works according to the flesh, then nothing good is in him. It's simply Paul's way to say, I can't live this life on my own. There's a a great deal that God has given me, but I cannot operate on my own. I cannot do good on my own. I am incapable of doing anything good. I cannot produce the goodness of God. I cannot achieve the righteousness of God. When I operate by the flesh. What is this flesh? This flesh, says one writer, is his old humanness which has not yet been completely transformed. The only residence of sin in the believer's life is his flesh, his unredeemed humanness. It's operating the old way and not by Christ. Why do we still have this flesh and how does it still operate in us? I I have found over the years tremendously helpful Chris Lundgaard's little book, um, The Enemy Within. You can find it widely. We've had it as a book of the month at least a couple of times. It's typically in our bookstore. You can find it there. Or if you um, read books digitally, it's usually on sale for about $3 on Kindle. So if you read books that way, I highly commend this book to you. Listen to what Lundgaard says in The Enemy Within. Why does, why does the flesh, how does the flesh operate this way? He writes this. In Romans 5.10, Paul says we were God's enemies. We were all of us Captain Ahab's. Christ is the peacemaker in the gospel, using his death to put to death the hostility between us and God. Our old man, the flesh, was crucified with Christ, rendering it powerless to rule over us and enslave us and, and to bear the fruit of eternal death in us. And when he appears, he will annihilate the flesh forever. This is the only way to deal with enmity. Destroy it. But when God's grace changes our nature, it doesn't change the nature of the flesh. It conquers it, weakens it, 
mortally wounds it so that we are no longer Captain Ahab's by nature, yet his defiant malice smolders in our flesh. This, um, just by way of reminder, this does not mean that when we have the flesh, there are two co-equal powers ruling in our lives, and it's, it's kind of a toss-up as to who is master and who is Lord, whether we're listening to the good angel or the, or, or the red devil on our shoulders, if you will. And, and we really don't know, and it's just kind of a, it's just kind of a, a guessing game as to who's going to win on any given day or in any given circumstance. No. In every person, there is only one dominant reality. The unbeliever is controlled singly and solely and only by the flesh. He has nothing else in his life. He can only do evil and sin. The believer is dominated, controlled under the lordship and mastery of Christ. He's the master. He's the king. He is reigning. He is on the throne. And yet, as one writer says, there are still fragments of a principle of sin. It's not dominant. It's not in control. It's not sovereign. Christ is dominant. And yet there are still fragments that remain in our lives. And there is a battle um, every day even for the, in the believer over sin and the flesh. But sin and the flesh are not the master and they don't have to win. How is it that, that the flesh sometimes wins? How is it that, that the flesh is manifested? William G.T. Shedd, who's written a, a commentary on Romans and also an outstanding theologian from the 19th century, says that there are at least two manifestations of the flesh. One is that, that the believer's general habit is obedience. So he generally obeys. He's, he's generally walking towards Christ. He's generally putting himself in submission to, to uh, God's Word and following after God's Word. But in what he does, even in his obedience, he doesn't obey absolutely perfectly. David, I don't know if you remember this, but a number of years ago we were having a men's Bible study in the fellowship hall and, and we were talking about the glory of God. And I remember you asking the question, can any believer ever do anything fully for the glory of God? And I said, well, in, I think I said something like, well, in theory, yes. In reality, I'm not sure I've ever seen it. Because isn't it true that even when you do good things, there's, there's just some little part that's hoping you get a little bit of credit? That somebody will notice how you're serving and how you're caring and how you're loving and how you're sacrificing and how you're forgiving? That you're doing all the right things. That, that honors Christ and that's righteousness, but it's not 100% absolutely entirely perfect. And so there's some sense in which the flesh shows up in that way. And then secondly, there, there is on occasion a, a yielding to temptation and a committing of willful sin. And so the believer evidences the flesh and the, the remaining fragment be, um, because, he, because he indulges in something that he knows is sin. But even then, when he indulges in sin, then, then he goes to the Lord and he confesses the sin and says, I don't want this and will you remove it and will you change me and will you forgive me? And he goes to the one he sinned against and, and says, will you forgive me as well? 
So he yields on occasion, but again, it's a fragment. It's, it's not the totality of his life. It's not the center of his life. It's not the dominant feature in his life. Oh, this, this is, my friends, a hopeful reality. We don't always do what we love. We don't always do things that bring glory to God. But, friends, we have been given a new heart. We have been given a new affection. We can do things that, that honor Christ and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit within us. And again, just by way of reminder, chapter 8, verse 4, um, He condemned, Christ condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in those of us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. A dozen verses later, Paul is saying, we don't walk. The, the general tenor of our life is not walking in the flesh. The general characteristic of our life is we're walking by the Spirit. And then he plays all that out over the next five verses from four to nine about what it means to walk in the Spirit. This is, this is a believer's life. Consider again what Chris Lundgaard says. As powerful as this law of sin is, It doesn't rule the heart of the believer. Though the law of sin works from the inside and ambushes believers at their best, it isn't their dictator. Believers march to a different drummer. The drummer who says, I want to do good. I want to please God, to give Him glory, serve His people, honor His name. By God's grace, the desire to obey Him ordinarily prevails in us, even against this insidious enemy within so, what is, what is the condition of the believer? I, do, I don't do always what I love. Is there proof of that? Middle of verse 18 through verse 19. Yes, there is proof. How do we know that the believer doesn't do what he desires to do? Middle of verse 18. The willing is present in me. I have a new desire. I have a new longing. I, I have a desire to, to honor God and live for His glory. But the doing of good is not... As one writer says, Paul says, my flesh is stealing from me my resolve. It's hindering my resolution. It's preventing the full completion of what I long and desire to do in my new person in Christ. I have the desire, but the flesh is is reining me in, pulling me back. And he restates that same principle for us in verse 19. For the good that I want... I do not do. He desires good, but he does not do what he desires. He doesn't always fail. He doesn't always fail entirely. His failure is not continual, but he does fail. It's somewhere between occasional and even frequent, this wrestling with the flesh and giving into it. He doesn't like it, but he does it. It's important also to notice that that while Paul says here he's giving in, um, elsewhere he he gives gives um, hope for the fact that this is this isn't the characteristic of his life. People weren't looking at the apostle Paul and saying, "There's a sinner." We look at Paul; he keeps talking about Jesus. We don't see anything about Jesus in the apostle Paul. Paul is the greatest sinner. Paul never does anything righteous. Paul is an abomination of the name of Christ. People aren't walking around saying that. In fact, Paul says about himself, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this 
in verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. You want to be a steward for Christ? You've got to be trustworthy. But to me, verse 3, it is a very small thing that I, that I may be examined by you. You want to test me? You want to examine me? I, that's okay. I'm fine with that. Examine my life. Look at me. Or any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. He says, verse 4, For I am conscious of nothing against myself. I look at all of the things that might be shameful and I don't have it. There is, there is no hidden life of shame in me. Check me out. Look, examine, test. In fact, he says, I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Not only am I not aware of anything that's a hidden life of shame, but I'm confident that I can stand before the Lord. And he says, there's no hidden life of shame. This is the same apostle that says in Romans 7.19, the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. There's hope there because Paul doesn't mean in verse 19, you're just going to live a life of continual sin. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a man who's generally, he's following after Christ, but... But sin just pops up on occasion in his life. So the believer is united to Christ, united with Christ, redeemed from sin, able to do things that are pleasing to the Lord, able to obey the Lord, to love Christ, and, and yet there are remaining deficiencies. In fact, we see this all the way through this section, Romans 6 through 8. So Romans 6, he says, We are free from sin, yet there is still a battle against remaining sin. Romans 7, we are free from the law and yet there is still the demand and criteria of righteousness that we find in the law that's holy and righteous and good. Romans 8, we are free from death and yet there is still the awaiting for the redemption of our bodies. And so all these things are a reminder that until final justification, there will always be a battle with sin in this life. It's just always a battle. You, you know what this is like. You, you want to be a servant. Don't you want to be a servant? In fact, as, as I think about Grace Bible Church, I think this is a church of servants. They love to serve and to give themselves up. And that's just the tenor of your life. So, so this week your boss asked you, hey, we've got this project and, and I know it's a push, but can you stay after work and make sure that this project gets done? So, so three days this week... Um, you stayed at least two hours after work to make sure that project got done. And Friday morning when your boss walked in, project's there on his desk. It's done. It cost you, but you're a servant. You, you love to do it. Friday afternoon, you get home from work. You say, I want to I serve. I want to serve my parents. And it's 147 degrees outside with 99% humidity. But, but I'm going to go and mow my parents' yard so they don't have to do it tomorrow. I want to serve them. And so you go and do that. And the next morning, you're up at 5 a.m. 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning. You're loading everybody into the car, all of your kids, and you take your car, kids, drive your kids two hours to a swim meet. You spend all day at the swim meet, drive back two hours, get home late on Saturday night, and you're just thinking, oh, good, I can, I can sleep a little bit later tomorrow morning. I'm, I'm grateful I've been a servant but I'm grateful also that I can sleep a little bit later. I don't have any ministry responsibilities tomorrow morning. I just go to worship. Ring, 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 10 o'clock Saturday night. Hey, I know you're going to be at church tomorrow. And do you mind 
if we could just swap ministry duties tomorrow, would you, would you serve in the nursery, stand at the door, teach my Sunday school class? I don't know. I'm really tired. Well, I'd really appreciate it if you would because I've got tickets to the Ranger game. Somebody gave me tickets. They're box seats. And I don't want to miss the Ranger game. Yeah, that's the kicker, isn't it? One, why would anybody want to go see the Rangers right now? But he wants you to serve him and he's going to go have fun and it's a sacrifice for you. It's hard, isn't it? You want to be a giver. You want to honor others. So Friday evening, the kids are gone. This is, this is date night with you and your wife. And she come, you come home and she says, Honey, I've got a great idea. She says, I've rented a movie on Netflix. Well, something we've been waiting to see. And, um, and, uh, and, and let's, let's watch that movie. And on the way home today, I got a bucket of Bluebell. It's your favorite bucket of Bluebell. And hot fudge to go with it. And you say, Great, I love Bluebell. I love hot fudge. I really do. And... Um, and she says, tell you what, uh, let me go set up the movie and you dish out the ice cream and bring it in and we'll watch this movie. Great idea. So you're like, you know, you've got this bluebell and it's scooping out and, and you love this flavor. And so there's two bowls. But one of them, one of them gets a little extra because you're bigger and you can handle the extra calories. You heat up the hot fudge in the microwave, and you walk in, two bowls of ice cream, the hot fudge, you're ready to go. And your wife says, oh, I can't wait. I've been waiting for this all day. I know you love that bluebell, but, but I've been really looking forward to this. I've, I've saved my calories for tonight. I've only used 500 calories, so I can eat this guilt-free as much as I want. Oh, man. Why did she have to say this? Because I've got two bowls of Bluebell, you know, by weight. Which one does she get? Do I love her and honor her? Or do I keep it for myself? She'll never know. What do you do? Yeah, you do what I do. You give her the big one and then you find an excuse to go to the kitchen and load up the other one too. (laughs) You know what this is like, don't you? It's remaining sin. It's fighting against the flesh. Will I be humble and pridefully take credit for the job? Will I scrupulously tell the truth? Or will, will I exaggerate just ever so slightly to make myself look better? Will I love someone when he seems to treat me unkindly? Will, will I love someone when he confronts me with my sin? This is remaining flesh. How do you know if you have remaining sin? How do you know if you have indwelling fleshliness? Just look at your life. This is how it's manifested. We don't do always what we desire and love. We're deficient and incomplete in our godly actions. And then, and then the question is, again, where does this come from? What is this? Why does this happen to me? Verse 20, the source of the believer's condition. What is the source of this? But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want. Now stop there just a second. He says, if I'm doing. He doesn't mean if like, well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. He means if as in since, or maybe even better, when. But when I am doing the very thing I do not want, in other words, there is coming a time when I won't do the very thing I want to do. It's going to happen. It's a reality. It is coming. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it. 
but sin which dwells in me. Is he saying, not me, not guilty. Is he like, you find your three-year-old, right? Um, Johnny, I think you've been in the cookies. No, daddy, I haven't. Really? You haven't been in the cookies? Nope, not me. I didn't do it. Really? What's all that chocolate and crumb around your lips? Not me. Is that what Paul's doing? No. Remember verse 16? The very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law. The law's right. I'm guilty. I'm condemned. He's not saying, I'm not doing it. But he is saying, it's the sin which dwells in me. What's he saying? He is saying, his identity now is Christ. He is in Christ. He's not in Adam. He's not in sin. He's not under death. He is in Christ. He is declared righteous. He is under life. Life controls him. Christ controls him. And when he does something that is contrary to Christ, it's not Christ's fault. It's not his identity in Christ that is doing it. It is his fleshliness. It is his sin that is still indwelling him that it's do- that's doing it. It's no longer him. Me, I, no longer am controlled by sin. And if you see me sin, that's not what Christ does. If you see me sin, now you know. If you see me sin, you know in that moment I'm operating by the flesh and indulging in dwelling sin. So what's the source of your unkind words and your impatience and your despondency and your fear and anxiety and pride? It's the flesh. It's your unredeemed part of your nature rising up again. It's indwelling sin. You are justified by God through Christ. But there is still a weakness and a propensity towards sin that will one day be removed to glorification, but it's not removed yet. And until it is removed, you will have a battle with sin. Well, let's summarize what we've seen so far in this passage. A believer will struggle with sin, even struggle greatly, but he doesn't live life dominated by sin. A believer will never be free from sin, but he won't always sin. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the tenor of his life. It's not, it's not the nature of his life to engage in sin, even though he is not always free from it. A believer will hate his sin. And love the righteousness of Christ. And friend, if that's you, if the general trajectory of your life is towards obedience to Christ, if you are not dominated by sin, but it's something that's occasional, if, if it is something that is repented of by you when you commit that sin, and if, if you hate what you do and you do love Jesus Christ, those are marks that you're a believer in Christ, you should take great comfort from that. God God is sanctifying you. But friend, if that is not your life, if you not only say, I don't hate my sin, I love my sin. I come home from work and I see how I can keep my sin and hide my sin and, and, and massage my sin and build my sin and keep my little kingdom to myself. Friend, if that's you, if you are unrepentant over your sin, if, if people look at your life and say, I don't see anything about Jesus in Him. Nothing. Really? He goes to church there? 
I can't believe that. Because I don't see anything about Jesus in Him. Friend, if that's the tenor of your life, if you're controlled and mastered by sin, you love your sin, you don't love the righteousness of Christ, then you are not a believer. And you are still under God's wrath and you are still under God's judgment. And there is no hope for you until you trust in Christ as your Savior. If you trust in Christ, if you say to Christ, I deserve your wrath on my own, I am not righteous. I cannot do anything to please you on my own. So I trust that Christ is my righteousness and I appeal to Him for forgiveness and for redemption. Then friend, then friend, He will save you and you will be removed from sin. You, you will still wrestle with sin, but it won't be your life. We have, as believers, unwelcome squatters living in our spiritual homes. We have the flesh and we have remaining sin. But here's the good news. As one writer says, the flesh is not who we really are. It is only a superficial and temporary aspect of our total personality and it is already doomed to pass away. In a short time, our bodies will be redeemed and the hindrances of our flesh will be gone forever. Yes, my friend, you're in a war. You're in a battle. You will be in that battle until the day you die. But through Christ, you can have hope. And we'll see this in the in coming weeks. You have hope that you don't have to live there. And you have hope and confidence that he will finally remove every vestige of sin from you. Oh, our Father, even in the midst of a passage that is that is so bluntly honest about the difficulty of our life and our battle with sin, yet still there is such great hope. Would you make us to be hopeful in you this day? Would you make us to see the provision of Christ for our sin? Would you help us to see the the emptiness of living in the flesh and the glory of living in Christ. And Father, would you continue to sanctify us so that we might honor Christ who is our righteousness. It is in His name we pray. Amen.